0: When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah,
1: this is perfect.
0: Relax. You booked a Verbo.
1: Hey. This is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. On this episode, we have Kim Fox, the current state's attorney of Cook County. Remember that Chicago is in Cook County. We also have a conversation with Reggie Bolden, who is the only black legislator in the Arizona state legislature. And then we have the news with me, Brittany, Sam, and Clint. Now, before we jump into this episode, I want to remind you that you should be chasing the work, that the work should be the guide of everything that you do, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was to always focus on purpose over position. And what that has always meant to me is that you do the work and the rest will follow. So focus on your purpose, focus on your passion, do the work and all the other stuff follows. I have run into so many people who are chasing everything but the work. And it never has the results, the desired results that you want in the long run anyway. Chase the work, purpose over position. Let's go. And now, my conversation with Kim Fox, the current state's attorney of Cook County. Hi, Kim Fox. Thank you for joining us on Potty of the People.
2: Hi, DeRay. Thank you for having me.
1: You are the newly elected state's attorney of Cook County. That's
2: right. Nine Only months.
1: Nine months. That's How's it, it feel?
2: Uh, it is invigorating and exciting and exhausting all at the same time.
1: And what is the state's attorney for people that don't know?
2: So the state's attorney is the chief prosecutor for uh, the county um in in Chicago it's Cook County Chicago makes up half of Cook County a prosecutor um, we have two functions here in Cook County we are the main or the leader um, in determining criminal prosecution so who gets charged with the crime what they're charged with um, how those cases are disposed but we also represent the county as their lawyer and in, in all manner of litigation civil litigation so, We have the largest single site jail in the country here Cook County Uh, Jail. Cook County Jail, which uh, we represent the jail, the sheriff, um, and the county in litigation that arises from the jails.
1: And before we start talking more about your current work as state's attorney, how did you get here? What was your, what was, and I, you know, I, like many people, probably remember your election as one where so many people uh, came out and so many activists, so many. Community leaders pushed uh, not only to get rid of the your predecessor, but also to proactively fight for you. But what? how did you become a lawyer? Like, what's what's the <laughs> story? How did we get to this point?
2: It's very uh, circuitous. And, and I tell people all the time, there seemed to be an inevitability that I'd be in the criminal justice system, probably just not as the prosecutor. Uh, so I'm from Chicago. I grew up in the Cabrini Green housing projects, uh, made famous by good times of uh, the 70s. Um, child of a single parent. My mother was 18 when she had me, uh, 13 months after my brother. So she was 17 when she had my brother. My father uh, was from the West Side, and his family was very much like, wow, you now have two children. You were supposed to be on your way to college. Go to college. Um, and he did, and my mother stayed behind, dropped out of school when she had me. And so, you know, I grew up with a strong praying grandmother, a fierce, tough mom who, like I said, at 18 had two kids and wasn't really ready to be at home.
1: And Your brother is younger than you. He's older than He's me. older than He's you. He's
2: 13 months older than me. Okay. Um, and so we, we had struggles. You know, I lived with my grandmother on and off with my mother, with my mother's sisters, um, with my cousins. And, you know, we lived in concentrated poverty stacked on top of each other. Uh, I was sexually abused as a child. I talk about that fairly frequently because, again, when we look at who's in our justice system, particularly women, particularly women of color, we have a significant portion of them who have had sexual trauma in their childhoods. Um, And that was me. Uh, When we look at both men and women in our system, uh, many of them come from single family homes. Many of them um, overwhelmingly come from areas of concentrated poverty. Um, and so, like I said, I had a lot of factors that the people that I see in the justice system have, and the difference for me was we we were able to move out early uh out of Cabrini to Lincoln Park, which is one of our more affluent neighborhoods in in Chicago, not because we could afford it, but my mother was like, the schools in Cabrini were horrible, and she knew that the cycle would continue if I stayed, so we moved couldn't afford it uh and I got a quality education where I was able to see a world that was very different from mine.
1: How did you move if she couldn't afford it? What does that mean?
2: It means like we are old, you know, Chris kid. Like we'd have an apartment that had a refrigerator and no stove um, or a stove and no refrigerator. I mean, we were living, we were nomadic. So between third grade when we left Cabrini and when I graduated from high school, we moved uh, seven times. And in fact, was homeless back um, in my junior year of high school. And so my mother would do enough to get in, you know, be able to make sure that she had enough for a security deposit in that first month's rent. And then we'll take it from there. And so, but also that we could live in this district so that she I could go to school. She was going to make sure you way. had a good school. She was I hustling. Right. She was hustling. I mean, mm. it, and it was tough. I mean, I, I appreciate it now. Mm-hmm. At the time, you know, you couldn't really have friends over because right. you didn't have anything. And in the projects, at least you knew you what everybody had. You had pretty much what everybody else did. When you move to a more affluent neighborhood and you meet kids who, you know, you like, what is this? I remember the first time I saw a basement and the basement was bigger than like my whole apartment and it had an arcade machine in there. And I was like,
1: what? You're like, what is this thing called a basement?
2: <laughs> what is this? Why is it bigger than my house? And they're like, we just kick it down here. We just like play ball down there. I'm like, but it's bigger than my house. right? Um, So we just... We, we were always on the fringe. We were, I tell people, we were hanging on by our nails, but also that I could go to that school. Um, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. My mother and my father fought over child support. Uh, and so I'd have to go to court with my mom. And the first time I went, I was scared. And she was trying to soothe me and said, you know, introducing, this is the lawyer, this is the judge. And I was like, well, what does the lawyer do? And she says, they fight for people like me and you. And... I remember the judge walking in and everybody had to stand up. And I was like, well, what does he (laughs) do? Why do people gotta stand? stand? And my mother was like, well, you gotta be a lawyer first. And I said, all right, cool. I wanna be a lawyer. And she never let me shake that. You know how some people get to be, I wanna be a cowboy, I wanna be a ballerina, you know, something fanciful. Like once I said lawyer, it was like, don't forget you're gonna be a lawyer. What did she
1: say when you got elected?
2: So my mom passed away in 2012. And it's really. Her death, I think, for me, allowed for me to do this. It, it, I don't know if she were alive that I would be in this position. What do you mean? So, a lot of who I am has, has been based on my mother's struggles. Um, my mother was uh, suffered from depression for many years. My mother smoked weed.
1: What's her name?
2: Janelle. Janelle Wilson. She smoked weed every day. Um, and... It wasn't even foreign to me uh, that that's what she did. People would come over and be like, what's that smell? And I'm like, incense. Um, she had, you know, bouts of, you know, real manic behavior. And, and again, you're talking 80s, 90s, where they weren't diagnosing bipolar. Um, my mother just would go, come in, go to bed, or she would just fly off. Right. And you know, that's how we lost our housing when I was in high school. My mother had a good government job working for the city and this woman and her got into it and in the midst of an argument this woman let a little spittle get out of her mouth I, I, I'm i just talking and that was all she wrote and my mother was suspended for 30 days without pay and again when you just holding on um, 30 days
1: is a long time it's a long
2: time it's over so we were that's what led to our homelessness and so my mom when she got her job for the city she didn't tell them that she was a high school dropout. She said she had an associate's degree. And so she was always very worried about being exposed, right? Mm -hmm. She was very proud that I went to law school. She was very like, I got to fulfill what all of that was about, but any thoughts of doing anything public, she didn't want that. But I think her life for me is why this job is so important. Um, why I wanted to be a state's attorney because the judgments that we make about people in our criminal justice system, kind of the black and whiteness of it, the good versus evil, um, does not is not what real life looks like. My mother uh, has been arrested before uh, for getting into it because she was had moments on the bus. Uh, somebody mistakenly called her sir. And she was like, do I look like this? And, and then it popped off. And I remember her handing me her bag you when were they there. were coming. Yeah, I was there. The way I had to... You're like, oh, man. come on, mom, <laughs> My please. man. we just trying to go seven blocks. <laughs> and she handed me her bag and she had... She was like, don't let go of my bag. And I was like, what's that in it? She's like, I got some... My stuff is in there. I was like, oh, we we finna? This is horrible. Um, So I know as good as a mom that she was to me mm-hmm. and all of the struggle that we had. I wouldn't be here but for her. Never. But the criminal justice system would see her as a criminal. And her dealing with depression and how she dealt with depression, her how she moved in the world, how people viewed poor people. My mom exemplified what was possible when you saw the humanity in people. And so the shame that she felt was really the propeller or propellant for me to want to be able to be in a system that looked at people for their humanity, and a system that really has the potential to sometimes do more harm than the good that we want to do.
1: And what is um I'm interested in in like what it's like to be on the inside now, right? <laughs> that like yeah. you know, I know you know I was a teacher and yep. I worked in I was a I was most recently the chief of human capital in the school system Baltimore, and I also was on the outside as an after-school provider and I think about how what it was like to actually sit in the office every day and like I managed our healthcare care program. I managed all of our discipline for all employees, hired every staff member in the district, set salaries. It was just so different being on the inside that there were these decisions big and small that I had no clue somebody had to make. And then I had to make them. I can only imagine what that's like on the scale yeah. that, that is your role So, three months into your term. You announced that nonviolent offenders who couldn't make bail of $1,000 dollars or more could be released to deal with their underlying issues, like mental illness, drugs, uh, etc. How did you get to that decision?
2: So can you
1: explain like sort yeah. of what the decision was?
2: So Cook County jail, like I said, is the largest single- site jail in the country. At one point, back in 2013, we had about 10,500 people in custody on any given day. And we'd been under a federal consent decree for years. In 2013, I worked for the president of the county. I was the chief of staff for our county board president. And we were responsible for the budget for the jail. And you look, we spent about a half a billion dollars um, dealing with corrections in in Cook County, just the county, a half a billion dollars. And so one of the things we were looking at from a taxpayer standpoint, who's in our jail? What are they there for? and what can we do to to get out from under the, the financial weight that comes from having that many people in custody any given day? And so we started looking, and what you saw was a significant portion of the people who were in our jails were there, not because they were a threat to the public, um, not because they had committed a violent offense, but because they couldn't make bond. And we're talking people who had, you know, our lowest-level felony possession of drug cases— who had $20 worth of drugs in their pocket, but a $1,000 bond. And they're just sitting and waiting. And by the time they got to their first preliminary hearing, the case is thrown out, but they sat there for three weeks. So this was a problem that I had seen up close and worked with stakeholders on even before I took office. And I knew coming in that that there was this population that we needed to do something about. And so it just was imperative to me from a prosecutor standpoint to say that I have a moral obligation um, to make this an issue. You know, historically, state attorneys, district attorneys stand on the side. The judges ultimately make the decision about what your bail is or who gets bail. We make recommendations. We had abdicated that responsibility and just said, we're not going to say anything. Um, and I felt, you know, as a, as a minister of justice, um, which is what our mandate is as prosecutors, that I could not in good conscience allow my attorneys to stand in a courtroom where poor people were given bails that we knew they couldn't afford. Um, and so I said, well, let's start with the obvious. The obvious was $1,000. You only need 100 to post. If you don't have $100 to get out of jail, we got a problem here. If you sit here for two months, three months. We had a guy um, who was sitting in jail for stealing $300 worth of shoes. Right. Which is that a like felony? A pair. Is it
1: a felony in Chicago?
2: In Illinois, yeah, the statutory requirement or a statutory amount for a felony is three hundred dollars. It's
1: interesting, just to pause <laughs> for a second, that like when people think about felon, yeah. like they think like mass murderer right. like bomb three buildings and shot up a like a movie theater. Right. But a felon in three
2: hundred dollars. It's a phone. Uh it's uh it's a phone, spare Jordan's. It's it's And that's a retail theft, shoplifting of one item. This guy sat in in jail for three months uh, for stealing $300 worth of stuff at a cost to the county of $162 a day. And the question that you ask yourself is for the people who believe, right? There's a a belief system about what jails are supposed to do. One, jail is not prison. I would always explain to people, jail is where you go before trial. Um, Prison is where you go to be sentenced. And there's a presumption of innocence that is carried with you until you are found guilty.
1: Let's start earlier. So yep. I get arrested Yep. and I get, oh, I only know this because I was just at the Cook County jail today, but I get arrested <laughs> and I get taken to Chicago public, uh, Chicago, Chicago police, police department. department holding like a booking place. Yep. Then I get taken to Cook County jail get processed, yeah. and then I go before a bond judge. That's correct. Okay, now take us take us from there.
2: So you will have uh, a public defender if you cannot afford one. And most people who come through our, our jails are indigent and get a, assigned a public defender. Um, and then the state's attorney is there. We'll look at your charges. We'll get your rap sheet. You know, have you been arrested before? Or what have you been arrested before ha- for? Have you had warrants? Have you not shown up in court? Um, and then very quickly... There's a hearing. Uh, they were averaging about 36 seconds. Um, where The hearing is 36 seconds? 36 Stop seconds. Stop it. That's
1: not what justice... Justice don't sound like... That's not 30, what justice... It's
2: impossible. 36 seconds.
1: That is wild. I didn't know that.
2: 36 seconds. And a judge makes a determination. It should be based on your ability to pay as well as what your reps. sheet says. And the judge will give you... Either an I-bond, which means you were released on your own recognizance, or you're given, historically, was a cash bond or a D-bond, where you have to post 10% of the bond that is given to you. So
1: let me review back. So if I get a, a $1,000 bond, then I have to pay $100 to get out 10% of that.
2: Correct. And I, I should be clear. So it's if you needed to post $1,000. So... Your bond is ten thousand dollars, and okay. you need a thousand dollars to get out. Okay, um, so that's the universe. So now people would need to pay a hundred. It's anybody that had to pay an actual thousand okay. dollars, um or less. And so we looked at that population. M- many of those folks were there for drug possession cases, uh, retail theft cases, um, people who had been. Um, Uh, criminal trespass, uh, who'd been on land that they shouldn't have been, or they'd been harassing folks outside of a a convenience store. Like, if you looked at that population, what we found was that we had people who had either addiction issues and were doing things to feed that addiction, had mental health issues and we didn't know what to do with them, um, and a significant portion of them were homeless. And so we said, some of these folks are never going to be able to afford this money to get out. Um, and are these the people who keep us up at night, with worry about our safety or are people who, you know, have annoyed us um, with their behavior um, and we just don't know what to do with them? And we felt that that was not the criteria for people to be in jail exacerbating if you have mental health issues or addiction issues, um, that that was a nice segment to start and see um, whether or not we could make a difference with the rest of the jail population.
1: So the change that you made is what?
2: So what we did was we worked with the sheriff's department. Um, so there's a couple of big changes that have happened in Illinois, and Cook County in particular. With that $1,000 piece, we met with the sheriff's department and the public defender's office and said, give us a list of the people who've been lingering in jails, who've had bonds um, of this amount, who it appears that the only reason that they're here is because they can't afford their bonds. Um, so then once we got that list, we vetted it. We went and saw, does this person, is there... Is there something we don't know about? Are they a threat? Is there some underlying thing? Once we vetted out that that wasn't the issue, um, we met with the public defenders and we filed joint motions, uh, went into court and affirmatively said, can you let this person out on their own recognizance? And that
1: practice is still happening.
2: It is still happening. Um, we started that in February, and then we issued a new bond policy internal to our office uh, that said that we would be asking for a recognizance bonds on a whole host of different cases, including felonies, where we found that people were, were there for nonviolent offenses. And our goal was, you know, doing a look back to see who's been lingering there is part of the game. The other part is you got to make sure that you don't have those people there in the first place. And then as a result of our policies there, the chief judge, uh, Timothy Evans, issued a new order for all judges in Cook County um, that says uh, basically... You are not to impose cash bonds um, that are in amounts that people cannot afford.
1: Now, given you know everybody I talk to is like the end of cash bail is a priority in Chicago. We're working on it. If it's such a priority and there's no bail bondsman here, there's not like an industry sort of fighting you all to to stop it. Then, like, why hasn't it happened yet?
2: I I liken it to. We don't have bail bondsmen here, but there's this boogeyman that hangs out there, right? And the boogeyman is, you know, the Willie Horton effect, that there are people who are so afraid that if you aren't holding people, you know, that you let them out and they commit some egregious crime while they're out on bail, that people will be like, well, who was the judge that let them out? Who was the prosecutor who let them out? Um, It is driven not so much around policy i think we get it but about this abstract something that will happen and i think everyone agrees that these are human endeavors that there will be someone who is out on bond who may do something uh that is that is harmful to someone else and they err on the side of don't let people out so that i don't have to be held responsible for that and i think that's where it is not just here in cook county but across the country is the what do you fears. say to those people I f- I say to those people we've gotten so much bad criminal justice policy that's been predicated on fear um, and right. not on data and mm-hmm. not on like the realities of our criminal justice system and the harm has always been far greater um, than any good that one would, would suggest that it would have and we just have to do the right thing And what we're trying to do in Cook County is be supportive of one another, right? Having the state's attorney's office step into the game, having us say, listen, we have a stake in this. We are asking to let people out um, allows for the public defender to not stand out there alone and saying this is what our clients need. I think it also gives cover to judges to say, okay, we're all in this together. Should something happen, don't do the inevitable. Well, if Fox didn't let this person out, then this other person would be safe. We, we have to say as a system that these things may happen, but the good outweighs what we know is human behavior.
1: Don't go anywhere. More politics, The People's coming.
0: Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South.
1: Today to get 10% off your first month. That's com slash people. One of the things that I recently learned from visiting Cook County Jail as well is that if you get released on um, electronic monitoring and don't have a house or don't have a house that qualifies for electronic monitoring, like public housing, that you just get detained. You like stay yeah. in detention. That is so wild.
2: It is again this false it's, it's this false narrative about us doing what you know, well we're, we're doing alternatives to detention, right? We the alternative to detentions we'll put a, a bracelet on you and, and look at how many orders for bracelets that we have. But if we don't have the ability to use them and again, we have a a homeless population. We have a like you said, a public housing population. Um why are you ordering? electronic monitoring. And some of it is a fear, right? So the alternative is that I can't monitor you with the bracelet, well then I will just have you home on home confinement. Um but I if I can't see where you are, if I can't But if get you don't pain, have a home to go
1: to, you're back in good county jail.
2: Correct. Why do you think bond is such a big deal?
1: Like why is this taking up so much of the public conversation about criminal justice reform?
2: I think because there's a couple things that can happen. One, if you have people who are sitting in, in jail because of their inability to get out. Um, if someone didn't commit a crime, um, but they just want to go home, right? If if your time sitting in jail is longer than what your sentence may have been, you may have an inclination to just say, you know what, I plead guilty so that I can go home. Mm-hmm. Um, justice is not served uh, by people pleading uh, guilty to crimes that they didn't commit because the conditions under which we've placed them while they're waiting for their moment in court Um, Has caused them to do so, and when we think about justice, you know, when you think that these types of decisions and that can determine whether you go home or you whether you walk out or you sit for months to years happen so fast, you know, I I think people would be surprised. Um, I was just telling a staffer of mine who had been in bond court over the weekend, and he was saying it moves so fast, and you see these these cases people need to see how judges make those determinations, right? Like there's a lot of conversation and rightfully so on um, prosecutors um, and on the defense bar, making sure that we have a strong um, and vital defense bar, but judges, you know, how are judges making these decisions? You know, what are the levers that they look at? Um, How are these hearings done? Are, Are people having an opportunity to have a fair shake? Uh, And I I don't think we've gone behind the curtain. I think it's been easy in places where there are bail bondsmen to say, what's the bail bonds industry? And it's like, no, there's still the justice system that does what it's supposed to do um, that is not necessarily operating um, looking at the whole person that comes before them. I mean, we we talk about people wearing numbers on their jumpsuits. We talk about file numbers. But these are actual individuals, and I think we haven't done a good enough job as a society, not just people in the criminal justice system, to pay attention to the humanity that's a part of what happens in our justice system.
1: And switching gears a little bit, you also prosecute the police. We do. How's that going?
2: You know, we had—I was sworn in December 1st, and right after January 1st, we had um, an officer involved shooting, but he was off duty. and. What was interesting is, historically, this office had waited for the administrative review. It was called IPRA, Independent Police Review Authority, uh, to lead those investigations. And then they would finish and would give the cases to us to determine whether criminal charges would be filed. So sometimes that would take months, if not years, before we got the case. And we didn't work on the investigation. We didn't have anything to do with all of the work that comes into making those determinations. and then be told, tell us what to do. Um, what we knew was that that wasn't sufficient, um, that we needed to do a criminal investigation parallel to the administrative process, because uh, anyone involved in in this type of work will tell you the quicker that you get to information, interview witnesses, get out on scenes, the fresher um, you are to the evidence, the better your cases are. So what we did um, in January was we put together a team of Prosecutors and other law enforcement agencies outside of the Chicago Police Department involved a Chicago police officer to help us build a team to investigate this case um, from the beginning. Um, And in that case, uh, we charged uh, first-degree murder charges within 14 days. Uh, Again, I was an off-duty officer. That was uh, January 2nd. Uh, We charged that officer. And then a month later, Uh, we charged an on-duty Amtrak officer Hmm. um, in this particular... I remember this.
1: This is actually one of the only... It's like one of three or four cases this year when officers actually been charged. Tell us about it.
2: Yes. Uh, So that was a case that we charged. Uh, An Amtrak officer working around Union Station, which is in downtown Chicago, um, had come across uh, a group of people who had been traveling, uh, I think, down south for a funeral, but on their way back to Minnesota. um, had told them to leave sees him sometime later, um, begins to commence a a pat-down. The victim in this case takes off running uh, as a result of the pat-down happening and is running full speed away from the officer. And the officer um, gets into a crouching stance, gets himself in position and shoots this man in the back. Um, And in that particular case, we charged that case within nine days. Again, having brought in... Um, other investigators outside uh, of the normal channels, devoting our, our attorneys to those cases uh, immediately uh, so that we can get people in the grand jury very early lock in evidence and witnesses very early um and make the charges appropriate, which was first degree murder.
1: What has it been like to be a black woman in this role? You are the first black woman I am in this role. I am. Uh, how has that been?
2: You know, so I've been a black woman um, my whole life, uh, <laughs> and, and
1: true that, true, yeah. True.
2: And i I tell people all the time I show up in the fullness of that in this job. And for some, you know, it being a black woman prosecutor is is a novelty. And not, but for some, I mean, the the data bears that out. You know, less than one percent of elected prosecutors in this country, less than one percent, are women of color, and. So seeing a woman in this role, I think 80 percent of elected prosecutors are white men. Um, I think women make up about five percent total. And I'm part of the less than one percent uh, is is a surprise for folks. It's, it's very they don't know how to handle uh, that. In Illinois, we have one hundred and two elected prosecutors um, for the various counties. Uh, I am the only person of color. Um, I am one of, I want to say there are three of us that are women. And so for the people around you, you know, how do we respond? How do we, how do, what does this even look like when you've never had a, a black woman boss before, uh, watching that, you know, but again, this has been a, a role that I've had as a black woman, as a black woman in leadership and watching people figure out how to respond to me, um, is interesting. In this space in particular, when our jail is largely made up of people of color, uh, I want to say it's about 86% of the people at Cook County Jail are African-American Latino. Our Juvenile Temporary Detention Center is about 94%. Um, when we look at the victims of, of violent crime in the city of Chicago, um, they are disproportionately um, African-Americans um, followed by Latinos. And the system You know, the system, the people who work in it don't look like the people who come from those neighborhoods. We hired our first ever chief diversity officer in my office and people were, why are you doing that? You know, what does that mean? Are you suggesting that only people of color can do this work? Um, And, you know, having to explain to folks in the office, you know, that there is our voices need to be represented in the highest levels of decision making.
1: Now, if so you are not yet a year. Nine months. And uh, you have three more to go.
2: Yes. Thank
1: you. When we talk um, in three years, what will you want to look back and say, like, I'm really proud that we, like, did these things or, like, that we sort of addressed these issues head on? What are the things that you want to look back on and be like, wow, we fought the good fight on X or Y or C? I think
2: I want to... I want the communities that we serve to believe that we have been out here advocating for them, right? And and I don't know how you numerically quantify that. I want to be able to say that we talked about the people who are in our system, both as victims as and defendants, um, as people in their humanity, and that our policies were reflective of that, that we don't talk about, you know, crackheads or... Remember, we talk about people who struggled um, with addiction issues and we recognized that we weren't the place to deal with them. And we created programming to make sure that we had public health issues dealt with in a public health space, not in our in our in our justice space. Same thing with mental health issues um, that we talk about the effects of trauma uh, on young people and don't systemically just throw out kids who engage in behaviors Um, as a result of their experiences and say that we've just lost them and we're done. And so that means I hope that we have really thoughtful, holistic programs around juvenile justice where we partner with people outside of the justice system, that we have lowered the number of people that we are prosecuting uh, for drug possession um, because we're dealing more with folks on the outside and, and dealing with treatment um, that we have a jail that is populated um, not by people who are poor and unable to to post bond, but by people who are dangerous um, to the community and, and have separated those folks out. Um, I, I want a system where people aren't afraid to come to us. You know, we we talk about the volume of cases that we have. Um, there are probably almost as many cases that aren't called in because people don't trust law enforcement. And they don't trust the prosecutor's office, or they had such a terrible experience with us that they'd rather deal with justice on the streets than in the courtrooms. Um, And so I want to be able to look back and have people say that they believe that they were able to get a fair shake in Cook County.
1: And last question is, there are so many people who uh, are in some stage of losing hope that they have fought for so long and like the system hasn't changed. They voted, they went to the Protest, they went to the meeting, they elected this amazing woman named Kim Fox, that they, and they're like, still, it's just not, it's not it. So what do you say to people who have lost hope, who are losing hope in moments like this, um, especially with this presidential administration? Like, what do you say to them?
2: These are dark times. I mean, I, one, I don't think we sugarcoat where we are. I don't think that we pretend like, what do you mean um, we're stepping five steps back right now under this administration I think you own where we are, but that if we give up hope, then we've totally lost. Like if we we don't have the belief that change is possible, then you're not going to put your whole self into the fight. Um, And I look particularly for black people. We are resilient people. We have been through um, challenges that I can't even imagine. I can't imagine um, what it was like uh, to endure the indignities of slavery, the indignities of having your children stripped from you. Um, or even when slavery ends, and it's like, go forth and get your stuff together, and go forth and and build a life, except we're gonna put all these laws on top of you to make it almost impossible. The endurances of of the the forties, the fifties, the sixties. We we've come through really dark times before. And I think it's, you know, to be Kendrick Lamar, it's in our DNA uh to to survive, to be able to to be resilient. And resiliency is dependent upon hope.
1: Boom. Well, Kim Fox, thank you for joining us today on Pod of the People. We consider you a friend of the pod. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to Pod of the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come.
3: Sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at four ninety nine ninety nine dollars and sofas at five ninety nine ninety nine. dollars Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, Hotels.com here. Tired of living like a sardine?
0: We know a hotel where you can enjoy the open ocean. Book hotels with ocean views in the Hotels.com app. Find your perfect somewhere.
1: And now the news with me, Brittany Pagnette, former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force in 21st Century Policing, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and San Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist.
4: It's the news. What's up, y'all? This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Packetti on all social media,
5: and this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint
6: Smith, Clint Smith the Third, on all social media.
4: I I I. I was uh, like where Clint
6: is it? Smith. I, I, I. I was trying to move past it. It's a new day.
1: No, Clint. We people got to find you. The third, they might type in the and then the number three or something. People are putting
6: like I I I on the Clint and like C L I I I N T. Clint. People are real Smith. confused. Clint
1: Smith. It's like celebration.
4: Clint
7: it's Smith. I love it.
1: And uh, this is Dre. Dre on Twitter. Now today we're talking about two pieces of news. Both have to deal with this. Uh, what's happening with this administration. As you know, Pottier of the People tries not to be consumed with this administration just because it is all you hear about ever. But this week, so much awfulness happened that we felt like we had to talk about it. So Brittany's going to lead us into one and then we'll keep going.
4: So I want you to close your eyes, unless you're driving. I want you to close your eyes and think back to the news reports you saw coming out of Ferguson in 2014. The images... Um, the tweets, the videos, and I want you to think about how appalled you were to see military equipment on residential streets, streets that I spent a lot of my childhood on, as did many others who were out there with us. Um, Tear gas, armored vehicles, MRAP vehicles, pepper spray, machine guns, officers in full riot gear, um, armed with bullets and rubber bullets and and um, chemical agents when we were armed with cell phones and signs and our voices. So I want you to remember that moment. I want you to remember how appalled you were. And I want you to remember that one of the primary demands coming out of the movement at that time and continuously has been to demilitarize the police, right? Um, That if we are going to have police in the current format that we have them, at the very least, they should operate as guardians of the community who abide by the Constitution rather than warriors who engage in combat with everyday citizens. That military equipment was made possible by a number of programs, but the most famous one is the 1033 program, which essentially supplies surplus military equipment to local police departments. When it was passed, in theory, it was about protecting um, us against foreign terrorism. But as we saw in Ferguson, it's being used on American citizens. Um, and so in the task force, we we took that very seriously. A lot of us Um, continued to pressure the Obama administration to end the 1033 program. We didn't get a full end, but one of our big wins was that we saw a scale back in that program um, and in others that provided that military equipment. And there had been a number of departments who were both had become unable to receive that equipment based on abuses in the past and um, military equipment that had actually been seized, right, and and reclaimed and um, returned from these these local jurisdictions. But your friend— (laughs) Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, as Clint likes to remind us his full name is, has decided just this morning on Monday, August, what is it? The 28th to uh, rescind that progress, to reinstate in full the 1033 program and other programs that provide that military equipment, um, giving the police full uh, warrant to once again be in combat with us. And I tried to come up with really thoughtful analysis, but it's hard for me because I'm just mad. I know how long those of us in the activist community worked on this specifically. Um, and this is why, this is why elections matter. (laughs) This is why whoever has been out there telling folks that it's only local elections that actually affect people. Like, I want to make sure that we, that we dismantle that myth every single chance we have the opportunity to, because this will absolutely affect everyday folks. This will affect people in the activist community. This will affect protesters. Um, This will affect people who came outside their house like they did in Ferguson simply for answers and for justice and were met with tear gas. So, yeah, here we are. Deep sigh. Wow. Deep, deep sigh.
5: So I wanted to add in a little bit about sort of what specific types of military weapons are now going to be allowed Uh, To be transferred to police departments, um, to your police department, Um, here are the weapons that have been specifically banned uh, that now are allowed to go to local police departments. So tracked armored vehicles, in other words, tanks, so tracks, right? Uh, A armored vehicle with tracked wheels, uh, so anything that you see a tank in in the battlefield. Um, Weaponized aircraft, vessels, and vehicles of any kind. Weaponized military aircraft. Firearms of 50 caliber or higher, ammunition of 50 caliber or higher, grenade launchers, bayonets, and camouflage outfits, military outfits. So those had been prohibited. Uh, the Obama administration prohibited that. Now they are allowed. So your police department can not only request that, but it gets it only has to pay the shipping fee to receive them. It doesn't have to actually pay for those weapons. Um, in addition. Restrictions have been lifted on armored vehicles that have wheels instead of tracks, tactical vehicles, manned aircraft, unmanned aerial vehicles, so drones, as well as riot shields, riot helmets, riot batons, uh, explosives and pyrotechnics like flashbangs, and other weapons. So these are the types of military weapons that your police department now can get uh, almost free of charge thanks to the Trump administration.
6: What was the rationale originally when these uh, militarized pieces of equipment uh, were brought into police departments? Like, what were what was the rationale during the Clinton administration, or what was the rationale um, generally about from coming from local law enforcement about why they needed? Uh, ostensibly these these resources.
1: Well, when we met with people uh, in the Obama White House about this, what they said is that it really ramped up uh, after 9-11, yeah. that that was when yeah. the rules became really lax because there was this idea that if they're terrorists, then the federal government should at the very least be able to take the surplus and just send it to cities and towns across the country. What was also fascinating about it was the
6: intention of fighting— terrorists?
1: That was sort of the rationale that yeah. was used is that like public safety, you know, we got the Department of Homeland Security, all this stuff happened and this just sort of was like one other thing that happened. I think that what we heard from senior officials too was that nobody was tracking this. So like they couldn't, you know, because it was an important win to get the executive order that stopped everything from going to it. But then we were like, well, what about the grenade launchers they have? Right? Who needs a right? Who needs a grenade launcher? Right. It's like, we should probably recall the grenade launchers and they don't even know the Department of Justice and the Pentagon don't know the materials that they even sent. Like people weren't tracking it back then. So
6: these were sent out from the federal government to different municipalities and different uh, police departments. And there was no sort of means for the government to understand or know who had what.
1: Well, that's what they said is that they weren't tracking it. What was interesting, when I was in I was in Waller County, Texas, where Sandra Bland got killed. um, And they have a they have like this huge armored sort of vehicle with like a Batman insignia on it. And the Waller County Jail is like, is is like as big as my classroom when I was at, you know, it's a tiny, tiny place. It's like, what do you need? This armored vehicle, you don't need this. And Waller County, y'all aren't using this for anything.
4: The other thing that wasn't happening um, was any kind of disciplinary measure for people who misused these things. Mm. So there was, it was kind of like you get it, do what you want to do with it. Um, and because the scene in Ferguson was so dramatic we were able to call attention to it but there hadn't previously been conversation about how these were being used and if departments that abuse these um, th- this equipment should should um, have it removed right like people just were not holding anybody accountable it was like a garage sale
6: That's really interesting I didn't know that piece about 911 but it's it feels really emblematic of the way in a sort of larger macro phenomenon, the way like the politics of fear and hatred are used in ways that uh, would uh, theoretically serve as the pretense for, you know, for example, this militarization when people use the politics of fear and hatred instead to enact their own sort of like ideologically divisive commitments to doing certain things. So, you know, when people are scared, uh, lots of things happen uh, in terms of, the, the enacting of public policy that is not at all aligned with something with uh, an initiative mm-hmm. that would be helpful in preventing whatever the catastrophe was that made people afraid yeah. in the first place and so so it's interesting to think about that right i think oftentimes we we think about that in a sort of larger international uh, and geopolitical context right that nine eleven was used as the pretense mm-hmm. to do uh, enact sort of occupation and warfare across the middle east but Uh, It's interesting to think about the ways that that event also had very real implications for the way that those things manifested themselves here at home.
4: What was fascinating uh, that I learned, especially being a member of the task force. Um, was that it was not just activists and community members that felt like the police needed to be demilitarized. It was the police. So I'm on this task force. It's an 11-person panel. Um, about half of us are coming from the community space, people like myself, Brian Stevenson, Jose Lopez was an activist out of New York, um, co- um, other folks, and then these, you know, police officers, um, somebody from a police union, but all fairly progressive folks, who A understood the difference between the guardian mentality and the warrior mentality, which was something that we took on head first. But um, they also recognized how much military equipment actually escalated these situations. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we're out there with cell phones and signs and you roll out there with a tank then like, yeah, we're things are going to escalate pretty quickly because Mm -hmm. people are scared. Um, And this intimidation factor is actually just not good policing. Right. Even from the police, the police perspective. Um, And so from literally every angle militarizing our police to this extent makes zero sense and yet it is what the foP is fighting for. It's what certain it's what certain contractors are fighting for right because you have to follow the money. Um, and there is uh, and the optics of law and order are what helped fuel this presidency. Um, And helped get this guy into the Oval Office. So, of course, if that's if you need to keep your promises to your folks and that's one of the promises you're going to keep.
1: And let me read uh, some of the obsession statements that he delivered today. So one argument that he's using is that this is actually important to disaster relief. So he said equipment like helicopters and armored vehicles are also vitally important to emergency and disaster response efforts. Which is interesting. He also invoked the Orlando nightclub shooting by saying these are the types of helmets and gear that stopped a bullet and saved the life of an officer during the Orlando nightclub shooting. This is the type of equipment officers needed when they pursued and ultimately killed terrorists in San Bernardino. Studies have shown this equipment reduces crime rates, reduces the number of assaults against police officers and reduces the number of complaints against police officers. And what he says. Did he
6: cite that those studies or these where are these studies coming from?
1: He didn't (laughs) cite the studies. This is just what he
6: said. I've seen a lot of studies. I've not seen a study that says that.
1: He says, those restrictions went too far. We will not put superficial concerns above public safety. All you need to do is turn on a TV right now to see that for Houstonians, this isn't about appearances. It's about getting the job done and getting everyone to safety. The executive order the president will sign today will ensure that you can get the life-saving gear that you need to do your job and send a strong message that we will not allow criminal activity, violence, and lawlessness to become the new normal. And we will save taxpayer money in the meantime.
5: You know, what's interesting about this is he he can cherry pick those studies Um, and I haven't, you know, he didn't cite those studies, so it's tough to even verify that. But, you know, for every one study that he could cite, there are a multitude of studies pointing to uh, the role that police militarization has played in making communities feel less safe uh, in fueling the rise of uh, SWAT raids and deployments, uh, militarized deployments of these vehicles, uh, often f- to execute drug warrants uh, that result in dozens of people being killed every year. Um, so, you know, he's going to pick a very small sliver uh, of what he can say that's that might be positive about this and ignore the balance of evidence against this. Um, and I think that's what this administration is has done the whole time is ignore the actual balance of evidence, ignore the science, and just push forward an agenda that um, is incredibly harmful, particularly to communities of color. I would also say in terms of, you know, next steps and actions, you know, the federal government right now and the Trump administration is is pushing these forward. But in many cases, uh, your city council, uh, your State government can actually step up and prevent these weapons from being transferred to your police department. Um, So in in states like Montana, they've signed legislation that prohibits police departments from receiving these types of equipment uh, and that prohibits the use of federal and state funds to purchase the equipment uh, outside of that 1033 program that gives it to them for free. And so, you know, that's an example of what can be done. We've also seen in San Jose, um, the police department decided to uh, return uh, one of its tanks um, back to the federal government saying that this was not actually helpful to what they wanted to achieve. And so, you know, this is something that's going to have to require a local and state strategy, especially, you know, as we've seen Congress be uh, so gridlocked and so unwilling to check this administration. And one thing that's interesting that I saw that Sessions
6: said was he talked about how this would, uh, quote, improve the morale of of police departments. And and that's a really interesting thing to reflect on in in a sort of larger reflection upon the role of policing. Like if you need or if your morale necessitates like bayonets and grenade launchers and tanks, Mm -hmm. like what does that say about contemporary policing? and, And what does that say about where people's notions of like power and authority are stemming from? Uh, and I think that that's something that needs to be unpacked and sort of delved into in in a sort of larger macro analysis of what police departments are doing as compared to the what they should be doing in our communities.
4: That was such an analysis because I'm just mad. So that was good.
6: That's real. Sometimes <laughs> the best analysis is to,
4: <laughs> just, is to shout. We have to be fully human. And today I'm angry. Tomorrow I'll be resourceful. But today I'm just pissed.
1: It is interesting, too, that the invocation of Houston in this moment, you know, that the, the administration has not made— Any overt gestures to help out the city of Houston in the middle of a major crisis with the hurricane and for him to say that he's going to restart the 1030D program Mm -hmm. as a way to like that this would be the magical thing for Houston is insulting.
4: It really is. And he is doing that in the midst of talking about this, talking about the wall. Um, in the midst of people being afraid to leave their homes because of their immigrant status and they don't know if they're going to be detained. And we're getting reports that ICE has already started to detain people who have been trying to evacuate in Houston. I mean, it's just really disgusting. And when people need not just a moral leader, um, but need a leader in a time of disaster, they are not finding it in this White House. And it is becoming more and more impactful um, and dangerously so to everyday people.
5: So my piece of news is uh, Trump's decision to pardon um, Sheriff Joe. Um, I believe his last name's Arpeo. I've heard it pronounced many different ways. Uh, and so this is relevant and, and important because this sheriff has been called the Bull Connor of our generation. Um, he is a man who uh, was convicted uh, essentially of uh, moving forward with a racist policy, despite a federal court uh determining that he, that that policy was racist and needed to stop um so literally he was convicted of illegal illegally pushing forward with a racist agenda um and I just wanna step back when we think about you know we talked about police militarization um and the broader message that that sends to communities and that this w- the message that this sends specifically um to communities of color and to immigrant communities in particular when this man who you know was one of the worst um police leaders uh period who 160 people have died in his jails 39 of whom uh have been hung or quote hung themselves wow. um which sort of boggles the mind Um, This man got a pardon uh, and Trump released a statement basically praising his service, as Trump would call it, um, and the and the work that he did uh, in Maricopa County. Um, And so I just want to put that on the table and talk a little bit about, you know, what that what the message is that this sends um, to other people who are practicing, you know, whether it's police chiefs, sheriffs, uh, police officers, prison guards other members of the the criminal justice system who may now feel emboldened uh, to move forward with uh, racist and unconstitutional practices, knowing that, you know, the president has their back.
6: And I just want to go back to that point you just made, Sam, about the amount of uh, prisoners who hung themselves or who took their own lives in Sheriff Joe's jail. I really think it's important for people to understand that, like, while suicide is something that unfortunately happens in, in many prisons and jails throughout the country and is something that needs to be addressed. Uh, the number of people who, or the suicide rate in Sheriff Joe's jails was dramatically higher than any of its mm. counterparts across the country. So, for example, you know, in in a three-year period between 2000 and 2002, in Los Angeles, the rate was 11%. In New York, it was 9%. In Cook County, Chicago, it was 6%. In Philadelphia, it was 14%. Uh, but in Sheriff Joe's prison, it was 24%. Jesus. Right? Like, that is... Not an inconsequential number, and I think that clearly something is happening inside of this space that is causing uh, a hugely disproportionate number of the deaths that take place inside of this prison. One, that these that there are a lot of deaths that are happening that are not suicides that we should be really concerned about, but that the the rate is 24% uh, clearly indicates that something is happening and that the culture of this prison uh, is is incredibly... Uh, violent and 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 incredibly toxic in a way that uh, is is sort of representative and emblematic of of the way that he he ran these prisons generally.
1: Yeah, I'm struck by that for 20 years, uh, Sheriff Cho operated what was called Tent City, which was mm-hmm. uh, essentially a tent of a jail that was made with surplus military equipment. And when he constructed it, he said that it was to save money. But, in these intense city uh, intense city, the temperature could rise to almost one hundred and thirty degrees in Arizona. Uh, the people were shackled to each other uh, during during their time there, and that he made them wear pink underwear and pink sandals and The reason he said he did it is that he didn't want them to steal the underwear or the sandals or the towels. They were all pink. And the shocking thing is like, how did this last for 20 years? And that the sheriff is elected and and to the credit of all the activists and organizers down there and people who work so hard to get him unelected this last time. is that It's a reminder that there's so many offices that go up every election year that you just don't think about because like you don't normally think about a sheriff or you don't normally think about the clerk of the court or prosecutors traditionally aren't like contested races, really. They're not very public races. But it's a great example how, you know, the sheriff in a lot of cities, like they determine what happens in the jail, that they are the people who essentially function as the local wardens. And we have to put much more attention to them because I would say that while he was likely one of the worst in the country, there are probably other people who are also really bad. I think about the sheriff in Milwaukee, uh, who is (sighs) who is a nightmare, too, that like we need to make sure that we get them out of office.
6: So this is a great segue to talk about something that's a little bit more uplifting. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about systems of oppression that are manifesting themselves in in a myriad of ways on this podcast, and, and that's important, and we want to name and bring attention to those things. But it's also important for us to name uh, the victories, no matter how small they are, that are sort of moving us toward the world that we want to build and the world we want to live in. And uh, last week, we got some good news. The ethnic studies classes that had previously been banned under the Republican legislature in Arizona Uh, A federal judge ruled that that law uh, banning ethnic studies from public schools in Arizona was racist uh, and that it was clearly intended to um, remove and target a Mexican-American studies program at Tucson High School where the minority enrollment at the school was nearly 90 percent. And, you know, the the pretense that the Republican— Legislatures were legislators were discussing was that the classes were stoking racial tensions and they were radicalizing students, um, uh, you know, texts like Pedagogy of the Oppressed and Paulo Freire's famous text and and thinking a lot about issues of of oppression in a in a K twelve context. Um, but the the judge has said that that was um, unlawful and that they couldn't do that. And and this is really important. You know, we've talked about ethnic studies uh, a bunch of times on this podcast, so we don't need to go through it again. But but it is uh, an incredible thing and an incredible opportunity for a lot of the students in Arizona to have these Mexican-American studies and African-American studies and Asian-American studies classes back, uh, because as we've as we've talked about, there is one of the most important things that can be done in schools and in classrooms is to teach young people, specific, uh, especially young people who live on the margins, about their history and to use it as a means to sort of rid them of the the pathologies that they've been inundated with about who their community members are, who their family is. And, uh, with that, you know, with that, you know, the sort of famous phrase, not with knowledge comes power. Uh, you know, it, it can seem cliche, but it, it has real, uh, real empirical weight to that. You know, we, you can mm-hmm. go through all of the, the research that shows that students who take in ethnic studies courses, uh, have higher attendance rates. They have higher graduation rates. They have higher mm. test scores, Um, And so these are, you know, this is not just sort of make black and brown people feel good. This is like this has real uh, academic merit to it and and is something that's just incredibly important for for young people to understand and and gain a sense of um, as, as young as possibly as we possibly can.
4: I think it is important. I'm glad that you brought that up to celebrate the wins, to give people hope that we actually can We can win and we will win. Um, And, and, you know, it's an important win, not just for, as you said, Clint, young people on the margins, young people of color who need to learn about their history. But quite frankly, if everyone is learning Mm -hmm. this kind of diverse history, if everyone is engaging in ethnic studies, if quite frankly we can get to the point where it's not ethnic studies and it's just – history right um for everyone um then I think we will all be better off right and and those are the kinds of things that help dismantle what we saw in Charlottesville um what people learn history that is accurate and not just a history of of oppression because we're all in the studio together um we've been kind of sending each other messages Deray just forwarded us an article that says sheriff Joe may now that he is pardoned and now that he is a free man mm. have mercy He may decide to challenge the sitting Arizona Senator Jeff Flake um, in his re-election bid and may try to sit um, on, uh, in the U.S. Senate. I really hope that there is no truth to these rumors. Or I hope that if there is truth, he decides to sit his behind on down. However, this is exactly what we mean when we talk about the emboldening that is happening across this country. Um, Because this, this dude is fresh out of jail from rounding up all the brown folks. Oh my. <laughs> all the people he suspected to be illegal immigrants, quote unquote, as he would say. How brazen. I mean,
1: we do have to make, you know, it is one of the ways that oppression works so well is that people forget that they have power or like the system is designed to make you think that you don't have power. Yeah. And that's one of the insidious ways that like uh, there are a lot of people who didn't vote because they're like, well, it doesn't matter what I do. And it's like, uh, Arpaio is a great example of like it actually does matter a whole lot what you do. Yeah. And, like, granted, we need to deal with like disenfranchisement and that whole piece of the puzzle too. But the people who have the right to vote who have been convinced that their vote doesn't matter.
5: There are incredible people, um, you know, in Arizona who would be incredible senators and probably, you know, as Brittany said, have convinced themselves that they're not qualified. And yet you see this man, Arpaio. Uh, who believes he's perfectly qualified, not only that, but confident enough that he would run and thinks he can win, right? And so, you know, what kind of value system, what kind of ideology empowers and emboldens people like Arpeo and disempowers the incredible people who could run for that seat instead?
1: It's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come.
0: When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah,
1: This is perfect.
0: Relax, you booked a Vrbo.
1: And now my conversation with Reggie Bolden, the only black legislator in the Arizona State Legislature, 31 years old, a former teacher. Let's go. Hey, Reggie, thanks so much for joining us today. I know that you are in the Arizona State Legislature. How long have you been in the legislature, and what's your role?
7: So this is my uh, third year serving in the state legislature, uh, my second term. Um, I represent uh, downtown Phoenix, South Phoenix, uh, Levine in Arizona, um, in the state of Arizona. I'm in the House of Representatives, and uh, there I I primarily focus on uh, education issues and also uh, issues related to criminal justice reform.
1: Now, you're in Arizona, and we all across the country just saw, like you did, the pardon of Sheriff Arpaio by Trump. Now, what is your take on that? What is it like in Arizona? And what is it like to be somebody who is working so hard on issues related to criminal justice and education and to see this pardon happen?
7: So what we saw with the the pardon of Arpaio is uh, a, a major abuse uh, of power, um, and that's what people feel like here on the ground, who spent uh, literally tens of, of ten fifteen years really fighting and pushing against Arpaio and uh, his racist um, procedures. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that um, Arpaio he was con- he was convicted. Um, and he was to face a sentencing hearing um, because he unconstitutionally used race in making traffic stops uh, to find out who, uh, who was legal and who was not. Um, and that was just something that was found um, by the judge to, to, to be a, to unconstitutional and breaking the law.
1: And what's the work ahead with regard to the work of criminal justice reform in Arizona?
7: So there's a number of different things that uh, we're facing here in Arizona. One, you not only have an issue um, like we see across the country uh, with regards to people of color, African-American men um, being shot uh, by law enforcement office officers, we also have uh, an issue in which we see... Um, that people are, uh, being racially profiled because they look like they are from, um, uh, let's say a Latino background. Um, so we have a little bit of, of both, um, in which that we want to work with the federal government to make sure that there is comprehensive immigration reform because we do have institutions in place uh, that are targeting the Latino community, and then also at a state and local level, uh, working with our our elected leaders to make sure that we are actually uh, creating uh, an environment in which everyone feels safe, uh, no matter uh, who they are or what they look like.
1: And Sheriff Arpaio was replaced recently, right?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Sheriff Joe um, Arpaio, um, he, for so many years, targeted the Latino community. And what you saw in 2016 was that the Latino community that has been racially profiled and targeted um, was was able to build a movement unlike any seen before, um, in which 160,000 new people were registered to vote. Um, You had a number of organizers um, knocking on doors, galvanizing community members to vote. And for the first time, uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio was actually defeated um, from office. And there's a new uh, sheriff in town. His name's uh, Paul Penzone. Uh, So uh, for the community, it was a little bittersweet to see that Sheriff Joe was removed from office in 2016, and then only to have Um, Donald Trump, uh, President Trump come in and and pardon him for um, one of the major factors of why even Republicans were voting against him uh, during the 2016 election.
1: And Reggie, you all are working on removing some Confederate statues in Arizona right now, too. Is that correct?
7: Yes, we are. So right now um, in the state of Arizona, uh, what a lot of people don't know is that we actually have six uh, Confederate statues um, that are on state property. Um, One actually is located right in front of uh, the state capitol. And uh, that uh, Confederate statue in and of itself is one that's uh, commemorating uh, soldiers um, for uh, essentially everything that they did um, during the Confederacy. Um, The biggest thing about that statue is that it was put here in the 1960s, right in the middle of the civil rights movement, um, primarily to be used as a form of uh, hate, to, to as a form to allow individuals who were African Americans to know that you should not have equal rights. So. Um, right now myself uh members of the N- the local NAACP um other uh community leaders Arizona Coalition for Change we are all uh collectively pushing to the- for our governor to hold a meeting we need to have something called a legislative Law, uh commission and this commission will allow us to actually remove uh that monument um right now we've got commitments from the chair um to actually hold this conversation so we can remove that um but right now it appears that our that our our governor our speaker of the house and our senate president um they are standing in the way of allowing us to remove that monument here at the state capitol. Um with regards to the other monuments, um there's progress being made. We have a, a Jefferson Davis Memorial Highway. Um and, and I've uh asked for that the renaming of that highway back in twenty fifteen uh, and it looks like uh we're actually gonna be coming up to a point where there will be a vote on whether or not we change that name. Um and that's something I'm looking forward to.
1: And Reggie, what is it like to be young? You're young, right? Uh, Thirty-one. <laughs> what is it like to be a young black man in the legislature in Arizona in a in a context that doesn't always seem friendly to issues about race or justice? What is that like?
7: You know, it's it's a balance here that um within the state legislature in which uh as a as a as a young black man in the state legislature, which a lot of people don't realize that um I'm the only African American in, in the state legislature, House or Senate here in Arizona, is that uh many times we've always been taught that you have to um work harder uh, you know, be more strategic, be, be smarter. And I think that's, those are some of the practices that, you know, uh, growing up that I learned that I've had to uh, rely on here. So, um, walking in, uh, recognizing that I had uh, a background in education and a background in criminal justice, um, was a a way to allow me to, to sit at the front of the table, um, primarily because we had, members here at the state legislature that didn't have that experience. Um, but for me, um, this is a whole new ball game in that, uh, it's all about relationships down at the state Capitol. If you could build solid relationships with people, um, no matter what background they're in, no matter what their party affiliation, you can get things done. Um, and, and, I've been able to actually do that uh, a lot of people don't know that uh Arizona didn't celebrate Juneteenth. Um, I was able to get a bill where Arizona's now Juneteenth is a state holiday in arizona been able to get some early childhood education past committees um, as a Democrat and a majority republican uh state legislature um and that's primarily because of the relationships uh, that I've been able to build uh to really um, Talk to people about you know where we want to be, and and not using you know um, my my age um, as as a major barrier. And you were a teacher, right? Yeah, I was a teacher. I was a teacher. I was a middle school uh, teacher. Taught seventh and eighth grade. What subject? Uh, so I uh, was a special education teacher. So I taught um, I taught math and I taught reading. And it's a little bittersweet because I moved to to Arizona. Um, About 10 years ago from Ohio, um, I was on my way to law school and and decided that I wanted uh, to to be a teacher and really give back uh, to my community, um, recognizing that there weren't a lot of African-American men uh, in a classroom. Um, In fact, I I never had an African-American teacher in my life um, prior to jumping uh, into the classroom. And it's a little bittersweet being here now representing the district uh, that that I moved to Arizona to teach in. Um, primarily because, again, we've seen uh, a a lot of complacency. It wasn't okay that our kids had to walk to school in the streets because there weren't no sidewalks we didn't have textbooks, so we had the uh, Xerox copy uh, workbooks for kids, so that just didn't seem like um, that uh, should be uh, where our kids, um, that shouldn't be an education our kids had to have, so that really kind of inspired me to run, um, and, and my teaching experience is all wrapped up into just you know what I'm fighting for every day.
1: And Reggie, where can people go to learn more information about you or the work that's happening with regard to making Arizona a more just and equitable place? Yeah, so there is a uh,
7: an organization right now here in Arizona that's really at the front line that's pushing for um, criminal justice reform, education reform, safer communities, and that's the Arizona Coalition for Change. So, if you are in Arizona, or you come to Arizona, if you want to get involved, I encourage you to go to AZ the letter C the number four C dot org. So that's AZC four C um, dot org. Arizona Coalition for Change. Um, I, I'm the board chair there, and, and the work that we're doing is directly impacting our communities every day. Um, we're part of a larger organization called One Arizona, um, and we'll be registering over 200,000 people to vote during 2018. Um, we'll be really reaching into communities that haven't been reached into before and really using you know civic engagement as a way to change policy and practice uh, so we can get a community that's responsive to the needs uh, of everybody.
1: Well, thanks so much for joining me today on this episode of Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and please keep us posted on what's happening in Arizona. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. You look around your business and see
5: inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite, by Oracle. 25. NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com slash streaming